You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg Podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. The stories of America's founders have become legend, literally. True stories mingle with exaggeration and myth to create a history that's entirely American. Author Gil Klein has given this topic some thought for his upcoming article, The Use of Myth in History, to be published in the summer 2012 Colonial Williamsburg Journal. Gil, thank you for being our guest today. Well, Harmony, this is a great opportunity. Thanks for, for uh, providing it. So you got to thinking about mythology and folklore uh, as they relate to American history, and you had an observation that a lot of our American history uh, has a better rate of survival if we sort of mythologize it. Well, there's a use of myth in every country's history. Uh, really, the, the actual history that we are familiar with and know and love is really uh, kind of an invention of the last two, three hundred years. Uh, but most societies have uh, a mythical backing. When we look at history, it's, it's messy. There are threads that are picked up but never resolved. Uh, but when you look at mythology, it's, it's a much cleaner narrative. That's right. Uh, what people like are stories that have an individual who is a hero. Uh, any good writer knows that you have to have an a individual that you can pin a whole story to, and that is what myth usually does. Who are some of the most mythologized individuals from early American history? Well, of course, uh, George Washington is the greatest, because uh, he, in reality, was the unifying factor of uh, the American continent, or the United States. Without George Washington, there would have been no United States. Um, but uh, uh, but they had to give him some stories that uh, could really resonate, especially uh, with younger people. This happened to coincide with the beginning of, of public education in the United States, uh, and that's where a lot of that came from. But... Uh, Washington was the unifying factor of the country, and there was a, a, a tendency to try to, to uh, mythologize him. And if you go into the Capitol, the United States Capitol, in, in the rotunda, and you look straight up, there's the apotheosis of Washington, Washington being turned into a god, right, that, that's at the very top of the Washington Dome. So it, this is something that was a, a very important to people uh, just before the Civil War. That, that painting was started just before the Civil War. Uh, and, uh, but my favorite one is uh, Patrick Henry. Now his give me liberty or give me death speech is so ingrained into Americans that even today, when my wife teaches fourth grade history, they reenact that speech. That is, give me liberty and give me death. That whole speech is so dramatic and is so much a part of who we think we are. Patrick Henry was a famous orator. Patrick Henry, in this was supposed to be during the Second Virginia Convention, I believe, in the March of 1775, uh, and he did speak very forcefully for Virginia to act, uh, to uh, take up arms uh, to support the New England effort. Uh, but what he said has been pretty much lost to history. This was a speech written by a fellow by the name of uh, William Wirt. Uh, Forty-two years after the event, he interviewed someone who had been there at the time, 
but who had not taken notes, so that person was doing it entirely out of memory. So Wirt wrote this speech, which uh, was probably the best speech he wrote, even though he went on to be uh, an attorney general, I believe. It's a great speech, and it's wonderful, but uh, it was made up by somebody uh, who was not there at the time. So the likelihood of Patrick Henry ever having spoken those words is, is pretty low, those exact he, words. Those exact words of that whole speech. Uh, I believe Patrick Henry probably said, give me liberty or give me death at one time or another. Mm -hmm. uh, but whether or not he said it at that particular time, we don't know for sure. And you mentioned in your article that part of your research showed that uh, at, at around the time that a lot of these stories are being generated is also coincides with early elementary education becoming standardized. That's so these right. become tools for sort of um, communicating virtues. Yes. I think that was a large part of it, was to try to uh, write something that would inspire young people and that would give them a sense of the nation and that the nation was something special. Uh, that should be uh, supported and fought for. Uh, one person said it was kind of written at the time, just before the War of 1812, when they needed to uh, make sure that uh, uh, the younger generation would uh, understood what the revolution was about. Speaking of the revolution, we know now that the midnight ride of Paul Revere probably doesn't go exactly like the poem. Uh, no, it certainly does not go exactly like the poem. It, once again, it is something that did happen, but uh, whether it did not happen exactly as that poem says it did, although it seems like uh, the history of Paul Revere's ride, ride was written by Longfellow, by a poet. Uh, for many years, people had assumed that's exactly what happened. There were uh, there was uh, other writers. There were uh, Paul Revere didn't make it as far as he does in the poem, and a bunch of other discrepancies. But it makes one of the great uh, uh, national poems uh, that was ever written. Another one of the anecdotes that you uncovered was the story of Pocahontas and John Smith. This is a really colorful uh, local legend That's to right. uh, Williamsburg and to Jamestown, Virginia. What really happened there? Uh, we get this story from John Smith himself, uh, and there are those who think that John Smith, when he wrote his memoirs, uh, embellished a few things. Um, he's, uh, they certainly were not uh, lovers or anything. They were uh, the age discrepancy was too huge. Uh, and uh, now, whether or not they were going to the Indians were going to bash out uh, John Smith's brains uh, uh, is open to dispute. Or whether or not uh, this was all part of, a, of an Indian ritual uh, to uh, bring the the captive to think he was at the point of death and then have somebody rescue him. Uh, but, uh, but certainly Pocahontas is a real person and figured uh, uh, very large in the early history of uh, the Virginia colonies. Uh, so, again, once again, it is a real person, but it certainly had nothing, didn't look anything like it did in the Disney movie. It's been said that, uh, and, you, and you bring up in your article, that myths explain us as we wish to see ourselves. If that's true, if myths are how, if American myths describe the way that Americans want to see themselves, what do Americans want to see in themselves based on some of these myths? Right. Well, uh, they want to see themselves as individuals uh, who are making their own way in the world, you know, the 
rugged individual, uh, the whole westward expansion idea of individuals going out and conquering the wilderness. There's a lot of that in it, and there's a lot of that we are... We are always on the right side of history. We are always the ones who are the, the virtuous side. That uh, you know, when you get into the the weeds of, of real history, uh, uh, might not pan out quite so well. We've kind of torn apart these these myths, but I wondered if, even though they're not exactly factual, if there is some element of truth that um, that gets preserved there, is there something sort of of historic value that we see when we look back at some of these things, even though they're maybe only sort of truthy and not exactly true? Oh yes, uh, uh, for most of them, there are uh, there is truth at the at the core of it. Uh, what uh, some of the people I quoted were saying uh, was that if you're going to do history, you have to first address the myth. Uh, because the myth is so deeply ingrained, and, and so you have to start with that and then pare that away and, and get to the truth that's at the center of it. I wonder if the myths we tell ourselves become p- part of our history's own oral tradition, become a history uh, in themselves. Well, I, I, uh, yes, I think you certainly have to look at um, uh, how this myth, uh, how people want this to be true, uh, the writer Tony Horowitz went all over the country looking at the uh, ex- myths of the explorers going right up to the time of the pilgrims. And what he found was that the people, he would go places and do the research and find the real story, and he found that the people didn't want to know the real story. They, they wanted their myths. This is such an interesting study. I wonder, as you were researching and writing this article, what the experiences what the experience of that was like for you? Were you surprised to learn anything? Did you come away with a different understanding? Uh, well, uh, certainly the idea, we, you know, historians always think that myth is bad, but you have to, the idea that, that there is a value to myth, uh, I think was, was really new to me, that uh, these things are important to the development of a people. Gil, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a fun conversation. Oh, this is great. Thanks so much for, uh, uh, for talking to me. And to see more stories and authors from the Colonial Williamsburg Journal and to subscribe, visit history.org slash journal. Do you have a question or suggestion for the show? Leave a comment at podcast.history.org. <laughs>